All right, well, this morning, good morning, everyone. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series entitled Living, by the Gra- Living Beyond the Grave. And we wanted to make sure that we understood and realized that at this time, as we are approaching Easter, and Easter is every day for us as Christians, that we're going to talk a little bit about the grave and talking about the new life in Christ Uh, So important for us to recognize that that's not just a seasonal time, but it's an everyday occurrence. So we entitled the sermon uh, today, You Must Be Perfect. I know that seems like such a demanding title. Um, Each day as we live, we understand that um, people might expect us to be perfect. Um, Wives might expect their husbands to be perfect. Uh, you know, of course, the wives are already perfect, so we have to get, get that down. Um, but the, the children must be perfect, or at least they're going to expect, or we're going to tell them they need to be perfect. Um, and in light of it all, everyone around us would expect us to be perfect. No, that, that, that's not really what the sermon title is going to communicate. Because we understand, too, as Christians, that we, we serve a God that is perfect. And although he is perfect and holy, and we've been forgiven for our sin, and we have the grace of God and the mercy of God, does that mean that God has lowered his standard of perfection? How, meaning what he demands, does he kind of say, I'll put it and throw it out the, throw it out the door. Uh, you guys don't have to worry about being perfect anymore. And so we hope that through this we'll understand, because we're going to talk about perfection today and perfectionism, and how does that affect us as Christians, and what does that mean about living in the grave or beyond the grave? I have a chart here, and just for sake of time, the, the chart is, is, is just going to highlight pretty much you know, what does the community, the, how does the Christian community represent themselves in all the world? As you look at this chart, you'll see that no matter what, even if we have this demand that we're to be perfect and we know we can't be, the world is still expecting us as Christians to be perfect. In fact, the church struggles with that too because they expect everything to be perfect. But here's how the, the, what we would call the community, how they see the people of God. Now, you'll notice there are some statements there in a very small print about Christ-like attitudes or Christ-like actions. And then they, it, it's comparative to pharisaical attitudes and pharisaical actions. Now, pharisaical attitudes with a Christ-like action is on the top left. And you'll see that the circles are small, which means it's, it represents a small percentage of people who see this and say, oh, yeah, I may see a pharisaical attitude, but there's some Christ-like action coming out of Christians. And then you'll see the top right where it says that you'll see Christ-like attitudes and actions. And that's even smaller, just a little bit smaller. Because what the community is saying is that they're seeing very little of us as a Christ-like action and a Christ-like attitude. Then you have the bottom right where it says some will have a Christ-like attitude and, and, but pharisaical actions. So we then, that, what that says is that we have great intentions. We see ourselves as Christ-like. 
At least we hope our attitudes are like that. But they're not seeing it in action. They're seeing a pharisaical action. See, a pharisaical action is saying you are being righteous when you're really not according to the standards of God. And then we have the bottom left where we have pharisaical actions and attitudes. Wow, look how big they are. All of a sudden now, that's how the community sees us. That's how evangelicals see one another. That's how they see us as a whole. And the percentages are double. And so I wanted to give you this chart because that kind of opens up our eyes to seeing it's not what we see. Because sometimes what we see inside is we don't like ourselves. So sometimes we look to perfectionism to clarify what we don't like inside in order to make it more perfect in our minds and our hearts. And so here in this chart, that's what it's displaying in Barna.org. This was an article stating that that's what the community is doing. And here now we have a picture of what we would call the empty grave. If I called at you guys, what's this the picture of? The rolling stone, dude. Yo, man, there's the grave there, dude. That's Jesus. Jesus came out of the grave. He rose from the dead. You know, now everybody would say that. Everybody get all excited. But what does that really truly represent for the Christian? Are Christians living beyond that point of the grave? Because the grave is a place where Jesus had to die on the cross and he died. And it was a place where sin was taken care of. And his resurrection gave us all new life in Jesus Christ. But why is it that sometimes we don't realize that we might be living in the grave? Because pharisaical actions and attitudes is a person who's living in the grave. And we'll talk about that. Because we're going to talk about different personality traits and how do they relate to the atonement. But we got to think about one thing today is, what is perfectionism? So I'll give you a you know, definition. Perfectionism is a trait that makes life an endless report card on accomplishments or looks. Whether when healthy, it can be self-motivating and drive you to overcome adversity and achieve success. But when unhealthy, it can be a fast and enduring track to unhappiness. So I looked up what are examples of someone who is a perfectionist. So you know you're a perfectionist when your bed is always done before you leave the home. That's when you know you're a perfectionist. <laughs> For all you perfectionists out there or maybe watching on Facebook. Or when your workplace is clutter-free. Uh, I recall when I was a... A car salesman, and I share that a couple of times here and there, me and my associate, we had glass windows, and we would look over to see whose table or desk was clutter-free more, you know, just like less cluttered, and we would kind of have these competitions, so my boss would come over, and he would mess up all our desks. He would just kind of mess them up and just drive us crazy, because we like our desk being clutter-free and perfect, and we had it all placed in a perfect place. My wife's like, where's that guy right now? And so it's like, you know, all that, and, but you might be clutter-free. That also involves your room, which that doesn't really uh, pertain to me anymore. And uh, you'd rather do everything yourself. You know you're a perfectionist, a perfection, excuse me, if you'd rather do it yourself. Uh, you're a perfectionist if putting gas into your car is a life or death situation. <laughs> That's when you know, you're worried about it, you're concerned, you're going to be left. They say you're a perfectionist. Or hanging up pictures or anything in your house takes hours 
hours upon hours because you want to make sure it's perfect. Or you give 100%, and if it's not perfect, you checked it over 53 times over and over again, and it's still not perfect, you do it one more time just to make sure the 54th time is perfect. Or you go overboard on small tasks. You'll know you're a perfectionist. Or your color coordination applies to everything in life. I was going to put a clothes rack up here today and show you that when I was, again, when I was a car salesman, I was 15 uh, suits all lined up, color coordinated, my ties, my shirts. Yeah, I had a pink shirt, a pink shirt and a blue and a white. I had my nice little, you know, all these ties. My wife goes, yeah, you still have them 30 plus years later. And uh, I have my shoes all lined up so nice. And my wife's like, still, where's that guy? And, uh, and, and I just, I, I got tired of it. It, got, it, it just was burdensome. <laughs> it was a lot of work. I finally said, I wasn't walking with God then, but I was like, I need help. Because <laughs> I sat there, and I was just color coordinating and doing all that stuff. And it's just like, man, this is too much work. It's taking all this time. But you know you're a perfectionist. Or if anyone touching your belongings without supervision is forbidden, you know you are a perfectionist. But here's another form of perfectionism. Self-oriented perfectionism is having unrealistic expectations and standards for oneself that lead to perfectionistic motivation. Um, It's this constant drive or desire to achieve an ideal physical appearance out of vanity. So it's like in that in each generation that changes Each one that grows in culture, more women today, they say, are interested in in, in a real. And so what happens is, as they're focused on their appearance, more and more inside, they don't like what they see. And they continue to try to make their appearance not just for the sake of looking clean and, and, and appear to be, you know, appropriate, but also that out of vanity, they want to look the very best, better than anyone else. You know, you have to think about in Hollywoods and, and, and celebrities and how much time they spend with body image and, and the culture that increases. In 2002, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, was taking a shoot on. She was preparing for a shoot for the Moore magazine, And it took 13 people in over three hours to get her set up for just one picture. 13 people in three hours just to get her set up for one photo shoot. And they had to keep working on her throughout the shoot. She wrote this in a book stating that, you know, or an article that, you know, it's there's so much emphasis on making oneself look good, but solely out of vanity because they don't like what they see inside. And so it's important for us to recognize that. If I were able to share uh, with you uh, a clip this morning, I would love to. Unfortunately, I might have to explain that social, another one that is perfectionism is socially prescribed perfectionism, developing perfectionistic motivation due to others' expectations. These are parents. Parents who push their children to be successful in, in athletics and or academics. Children feel the need to meet their parents' lofty expectations. You know, you see it at 
any kind of little league game. You see it when parents are screaming and yelling and expecting their child to be great and perfect and really ripping them up in front of everyone and being an embarrassment to their children. And then they're just beating them up. You see it. I've seen it for many years. Over the past 30 years, I've seen it where it's because sometimes the parent is living their, reliving their lives through their children because they don't like what they see in themselves, so they want to hopefully find it in their children. Academics as well, they, they don't want their kids to slack. They want them to be perfect, and if they don't live up to the standard that they expect, then what happens is they get angry, frustrated, and depressed. It becomes a pattern. You know, if I were able to show you a video right now of the change from Michael Jackson when he was a child to before he passed away, the physical change, if I were able to show you that, it would be outrageous of what you see, what he was once, this boyish figure, you know, boyish face and this, these boy-like figures to where just before he died, practically looked like a woman. Why was that the case? Well, some would say, you can't make up an excuse. He was a young boy at a celebrity status of about eight years old. He didn't know what it was like to be a child. His father physically and verbally abused him and the entire family. And the reason why Joe Jackson said he would he'd do it and he self-admittedly said is because I had to make sure that my kids were going to be perfect when they got up there on the stage. And they made a mistake, I'd whip them before so that they would never make a mistake again. How did that turn out? Not too good for Michael Jackson. Some would say that he OD'd on drugs prior to his death, which obviously it did. It, le it led to that. He was inside and he even admitted it, Michael Jackson, I was afraid of my father. I was terrified because I couldn't live up to his expectations. We know the story. We followed it over the years. But that's what ends up happening. Perfectionistic parents, perfectionistic people are always looking to live through the lens of someone else. See, perfectionism, it derives from a couple of things. There's pride. There's fear of failure and rejection. There's this desire for acceptance. And then there's this control issue. The control issue needing to protect themselves and ensure their own safety. What was fascinating for me studying and looking through in psychology today in an article, this is what I looked at the opposite end, in my opinion, of a perfectionistic person. That would be a procrastinator. But I found this. It says this, procrastinators are often perfectionists. Blew me away. I'm like, what? You kidding me? I've never thought of that. It goes on, from whom it may be psychologically more acceptable to never tackle a job than to face the possibility of not doing it well. They may be so highly concerned about what others will think of them that they put their futures at risk to avoid judgment. They find themselves where they, they don't believe they can accomplish a task, so they avoid it. They're avoiders. And you think that they're lazy, but it's not that they're lazy. They're focused, and they see, and they, and they realize, I can't do this, so I'm not even going to try. So they pull back, and they don't want to do it because they're afraid others won't accept them. And if they fail, there's that fear of failing and acceptance, so they say, backing out. I'm not doing this. I'm going to avoid it. And so what we would think that a procrastinator doesn't care really does care. He or she would love to see something happen, but they need to realize that they too have those perfectionistic strivings. 
So why am I going down this road? Why am I simply saying that, okay, you know, that's what it's all about. What is it about perfectionism? And before we can say this, is perfectionism a personality trait or is it sin in the grave? See, there are three aspects of the atonement here that we've got to see. And we got to highlight living beyond the grave. Because the grave smells. There's a deceased body in it. We see this in the scripture when Lazarus was in the tomb and Martha com commented to Jesus, Lord, by this time it stinketh. I'm not making that up. That's King James Version. It stinketh. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it smells. The body is in the grave. Why would you want to go in there and take Lazarus out? It's four days. And, and the Jews believed after four days that the body is gone. It's been into eternity and there's no way to retrieve it back. And Jesus saying, that's exactly why I'm waiting four days. So he goes, and it stinketh, it smells, it has a stench, and why would we want to go back to the grave? But here are the three aspects of the atonement, because the sin is in the grave. Jesus removed the curse of the law, perfectionism. That's what we're going to talk about today. Number two, he removed condemnation, critical spirit, revenge, because God is the judge for the believer. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. <coughs> innocent lamb who took on the cup of wrath to appease God's anger against sin. He took anger as well. He removed it. He removed the anger against sin. God is appeased. He's satisfied. So is it a personality trait or sin in the grave? Can someone say as a believer, I tend to be perfectionistic. Is that a personality trait or is it sin in the grave? I tend to be critical. I tend to condemn people. I see something, I'm just critical. Is that a personality trait or is that sin in the grave? I tend to have a temper. You know, you guys get it. You know, once in a while I kind of lose it. I lose it for a couple of moments. And then it's, you know, five or six or seven minutes down and you're still going at it. Is that a personality trait or is that sin in the grave? Is it something we can simply say it's okay? To do that. These are things that we have to attain to and look at. I mean, we understand from the scriptures, it's very clear that God never called us to be perfect. He demands perfection. But we can't be perfect. It's impossible. But what he has called us to is relationship. In the Old Testament and the New, we understand that from the very beginning to the end. That by grace, through faith in God, the God of Israel, or in Jesus in the New Testament, all one. Yahweh, Kyrios, all together is one. And so we understand, too, in the Old Testament that it's very clear that as we understand and see is that we, um, we, would, we would see even in Exodus 19.5, Exodus 19.5 is very clear here. Because what it's saying is now, therefore, if indeed you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That's relationship. 
That's saying, obey my voice, hear my voice, spend time with me. It's not keeping a law. It's not keeping a measured law that says, if I do something, I'll get something in return. It's just like when you go to the bank and they give you like one of those lollipops. I didn't do anything for it, but they give me a lollipop. They're like, I need a lollipop. I need sugar right now. And so you give me the lollipops. How many lollipops do you need? Well, it's just one. Give me five or six and I'll give them to my kids and I eat them all the way back home. I mean, that's not something like I want to receive something. I do something and I receive it. Because with God, he's wanting relationship, just like in the Old Testament and New Testament, because he wants to, us to be his people. And to be his people, we have to be connected intimately with him. See, it was never God's intention. It was never God's intention for the people of Israel to just keep his law, but to listen to it and to obey it. It wasn't just to keep it. See, to listen and obey, it really means the idea of in the Hebrew is an absolute obedience, not simply a mental awareness of the sound. So again, just like when your wife is calling on your husband or husband calling your wife, but it's usually the wife calling the husband, hey, honey, I need you to do something for me real quick. Can you go uh, make sure you do something upstairs? Put the laundry out. I need you to pick it up. Okay, honey, after I finish washing my game, uh, March Madness. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, honey, I'll do that. I'll do that. And we hear it, but in our minds we're saying, no, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you're like, didn't you remember that I told you that? Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot. I heard it. But I really didn't have the intention to do it. <laughs> I mean, I was like kind of whispering in myself, like, I'm watching this game. This is more important to me right now. <laughs> Can't miss the game. And see, that's what ends up happening with God. God tells us things. We're to listen to his voice. We hear it. But we say, oh, yeah, yeah, Lord, I might go to it. And then we don't. That's what it, it seems like as we move on and move on and move on. See, it was never, ever, ever God's intention to do that. So we obey God, not as rules. We obey God, not as rules. Otherwise, there's no relationship. There's just none. And that's why we have to understand that rules without relationship leads to rebellion. You can't just expect to do something for God and then he's pleased with it and that everything's fine. God wants more than that from us. He wants that relationship because what we'll end up doing is avoiding God rather than approaching God. We'll avoid him because if we do what we have to do, we won't spend any time with this. Okay, God, I did what I have to do. I'm leaving instead of approaching him and saying, here's my weaknesses. Here are my flaws. Here are my inadequacies. Here's my struggles. Here's my sin. Here I am, God. And then we learn to approach him because we know he's safe. He's secure. He's a God that accepts us just the way that we are. And so then we don't lean on perfectionism. We lean on his perfection through Christ because that ultimately means that we're set before him. Then we can go before him and say, okay, God. And then we don't say, well, I don't care what you think. I know God understands me. Even if I am living in sin, it's okay because God understands me. God understands what you're going through, but that doesn't mean God accepts what you're doing. Watch out now what I say. God may understand what you're going through, but he may not accept what you're doing. He may understand the rationale and the justification of it in our minds. But remember, what we think and what God is thinking are two different things. That's important for us to grasp as we look at this. So we need to understand that the important thing is to pursue his perfection. Pursue his perfection in Christ, meaning his demand doesn't go down. He expects us to be perfect, but we're not to be perfect in our own ability. We're only perfect through Christ. And he offers that to us. He offers that with the beauty of it. So what we want to say, we pursue God 
perfection because he has offered us. What has he offered us? Well, one, he's offered us forgiveness. Look with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. We're just going to look at it very quickly. Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 14. If you have your scriptures, that's fine. Otherwise, I'll put it up here as well on the screen. So he's offered us forgiveness. Chapter 3, 10 through 11, as we understand the passage is really clear. What Paul is doing, he's dealing with the Judaizers. And as he's dealing with the Judaizers, Judaizers were Jewish people who believed in salvation, began to trust in Christ, but believed that the law should also be added in. Meaning keep, keep the religion. Keep the aspects of the religion. Do the ceremonial laws. Keep them. Keep the moral law. Keep the judicial law. But you add it too, and God will even be more pleased with us because we're Jews. We're his people. We're physical descent in Jews, and God really loves his physical descent in Jews. So we will be spiritual Jews after we keep the law. But keeping the law doesn't give anyone justification before God in gaining righteousness. Might feel good for us. Might do good for others. But it ultimately doesn't please God. God doesn't justify us accordingly to it by keeping a law, a measuring tool in which we say, yes, God, you're interested in what we're doing. See, God's not looking for us to rely on what we can do, but what he has done through us. So if you read the scripture, it says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do that. Scholars have struggled with this passage. This is Deuteronomy 27, 26. They've struggled because it almost sounds as though Paul is alluding that we must keep the law or we're going to be cursed. If we don't keep the law, then we're cursed. But actually, it is saying that. What it means, it's the results that if you, you can't keep it, therefore you will be cursed. He's trying to make an argument with those who are Judaizers to say, you can't keep the law. You can't add it to, the, to salvation and faith. It's not going to bring anything. It's actually going to bring a cursing. It's not going to bring a blessing. So you can't keep the law. So why even try to do it? Because the intent from the Old Testament was to have relationship with God, not keep a law, obey his voice. Honor him in sanctification. See, doing the works to live by them was just to honor God. It was sanctification so that the, the, the Gentiles would see that they were different. But instead, the Jews flipped the script and began to say, you know what? We need to live by this so God will be pleased with us. How do we do that today? If I read my Bible 15 minutes a day, God will be pleased with me. I may not know what it says. I don't even know if it makes any sense. I don't even know if it's going to apply to my life, but I will read the actual words and hope it brings some mysticism of righteousness and joy and happiness and everything will be happy. But we read the Bible. Or you can say, no, I really want to read the Bible and I want to understand and I've read the Bible and now God is pleased with me because I read the Bible. So I go, check, check, check. It's the checkmark Christian. It's doing it with the intent of getting some special blessing from God. But God doesn't do that. Or if I pray 15 or 20 minutes a day, or if I do a good you know, deed for my wife and my children, if I help someone at the church, if I go out of my way and self-sacrifice, God will be pleased with me. No, we do that because we love him. We do that because we want others to see Christ in us. We do that because we want to witness to others. We do that so that we could hope to win someone to faith in Christ. That's why we do what we do. 
Keeping the law isn't one way in which we will do it. In fact, he goes now, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Faith doesn't measure sometimes. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the Jew would keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, but they're missing the mark. See, we need to live in the hope of our forgiveness, not in the hopelessness of our failures. If we had to keep the law in our walk with God in faith, we would only fail, right? I mean, we would fail often, and then we would say, wow, I can't check mark anything because I'm failing. All I do, I could say I'm doing it, but it's not getting me anywhere. God never intended for that. That's why he offered Jesus, because as perfectionistic people, we're going to fail. A perfectionist hates to fail. A perfectionist hates to open up and be vulnerable and transparent. A perfectionist hates to open up and show weaknesses and flaws because then that person can say, I'm no longer perfect. And so what we end up doing is we hide it. We cover it up. We don't want anybody to know. And what happens is we don't even turn it over to God. So we have a difficult time being vulnerable and transparent before our God. But how can we receive forgiveness if we're not allowing God to enter in our presence. You know, I don't think the problem is that people believe or don't. I, I don't think the problem is that they don't believe that God has forgiven them. I think the problem is they can't forgive themselves. I think that's the bigger problem. I remember a time in 1991, I was sitting, I was still, 30 years, 30 years later, I still remember, I was sitting in a church in, in Souderton, although I was just living there for a short period of time in between with school, and I, you know, I was sitting in there, and the preacher started preaching about forgiveness, and he says, have you forgiven yourself? And then I, I said, yeah, I think I have, and the Holy Spirit said, you haven't. I said, what do you mean, Holy Spirit? What, huh, what, huh? He goes, you haven't forgiven yourself. Because I was struggling, I was struggling. And the Holy Spirit just opened my heart and just said, if you could only see that when I set you free from that, you'll be used of me in ways that you can't even imagine. I had to realize that I had to forgive myself. God forgave me. It was sufficient. But what I was saying to God is your son is not sufficient. The act on the cross is not sufficient. Resurrection is not sufficient. Forgiveness of sin is not sufficient. I am going to tell you, Lord, I can't believe you could forgive me. Do you see who I am, Lord? I'm a wretch. And he's like, that's right. And that's why I sent my son for you. I said, but Lord, don't you understand? Look at the things I think and do. Yeah, right, that's okay. But Lord, you, you got to turn your back. You can't see what I used to do. I'm not going to turn my back. I've seen everything you've done, <laughs> and I've forgiven you. But Lord, all the crap, the garbage, the junk, he said, I've forgiven you. That's when I realized that I can now forgive others, and then I forgive others. I can share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins because God, I know, has forgiven me. And sometimes we have to experience that because it's not just a statement. We have to experience it. And sometimes we have to mess up in order to experience his forgiveness. For all of you, for all of, you of my self-emitting perfectionists, guess what? That's what God is trying to do with each of us. I was once a procrastinator because I was afraid. I was afraid of making a bad choice. And that God said through my wife, you got to let this go. It took me a while. It took me a couple of years or more to realize it's okay if people don't accept you. It's okay 
to not please others. It's okay. And that, too, was hard-hitting for me. It was unbelievable what happened. Because no matter how much you intentionally sin, or us, God has intentionally covered it with the blood of Christ. Amen, hallelujah. That's forgiveness. That's being set free from the bondage of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says it very clear. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The once and for all forgiveness with the blood that was shed for Jesus Christ. We love him for that. Number two, we pursue God's perfection because he has offered us freedom. We have the freedom. We're no longer in the bondage of sin. We're no longer in the bondage of being under the curse of the law. We have been set free. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them, meaning sanctification. The one who keeps the law lives by them, and it's all of that. It's not the law is not a faith. It's a measuring tool. It just tells us that we can please God, but it's not relationship. And that's why it's important for us to realize that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 13, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Redeemed means secure deliverance, liberated from the curse of the law. And God set us free by becoming sin for you and I. So he set us free. And everyone who hangs on a tree, in Deuteronomy it says that if they're hanging on a tree, they have to be taken down or they'll defile the land. But I love the word becoming because this is what it says. This is what it means. It gives the idea that he became a criminal on behalf of sin. He became a public spectacle. Criminals were hung on the cross, Roman instrument for execution as a public spectacle. When they died, they were to be brought down from the cross so they would not, not dishonor God and defile the land. So God had to make Jesus a curse for you and I on our behalf. Isn't that love? I mean, he's given us the freedom that we need. So we have to find ourselves realizing that God has not called us to live in the grave. So when we live in the graves, when we're trying to live in the perfection that we no longer have to because Jesus Christ died for it, for the curse of the law, which is the curse of perfection. We're no longer in the grave. We shouldn't be living in the grave. We should be living beyond the grave. In fact, I love when it says this statement here from, from John Bloom. It says, in Christ, you are free. You are free to follow Jesus imperfectly <laughs> because you don't have to be perfect anymore. We're set free. I love that. That set me free when I read that because God's not expecting perfection from anyone else. Why would we want to go back to the grave? It stinks. It smells. It stinketh. I mean, can you imagine, like, if you know, if you come into my house, sometimes it can smell like garlic. Maybe not as often. My wife and I, we clean. But it can smell like garlic because we make a lot of things with garlic. And then, you know, it smells like an Italian home. And I think that you, most of you would like that. But if you walk in, when I walk in, I don't think about it because it just smells like my house. But when you walk in as a new person with a new nose and, and, a, and a clear nose and you're saying, it smells different, bro. No, no disrespect. It smells uh, like garlic in here. Okay. Well, it's because you're coming in, but I'm comfortable in my smell. I'm comfortable in the smell of my home. I'm comfortable when my socks are stanky in the corner. You know what I'm saying? 
Um, I go back to the grave. It can be comfortable. It can be comfortable in the stench because we're accustomed to it. We're living in our sin, so we're accustomed to it. You know, like when you have an old bed and it's got that body imprint of just perfectly for you, just kind of slide right in. And I'll be like, dude, man, your, your bed is sinking. No, no, it's perfect for me, man. But you don't know it's not. You think it's perfect because you fit right into it. Sometimes we get comfortable in the grave. And we don't even know we're in the grave. That's what perfection does for us. God set us free. God is saying, it's kind of like this. Going back to the grave is like returning to the prison cell after you've been declared innocent. Nobody wants to go back to prison. That's what living in the grave is all about. Number three, we pursue God's perfection because he has offered us, lastly, faith. Faith. He's offered us the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, what faith, it says here in Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing, not the cursing, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, which is ethos. Gentiles, listen, everybody, that's race. We are a people of nations, ethos, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles made up of different races and different nations. And Paul's saying it right there for the gospel that we are Gentiles with different people. And that we as a people, Abraham might come to, he's the father of many nations. So that we might receive the promise through faith. He's not just offered it to the Jews. He's offered it to all, to Gentiles, to all peoples everywhere, all nations, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are all nation people, all different. It's in America, we're 180 different nations all around the world or even more. And the gospel's offered to everyone. And when one's hurting, all are hurting. Because that's what the gospel is about. It's a promised spirit given to us through faith in Christ. With Christ, we've been redeemed, reconciled, regenerated by the spirit. And now we are his representatives. I love in Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, even through 28, where it says this. It says that um, I will give you a new heart. He's talking to the nation of Israel, regenerated for the millennial kingdom. And I'll, a new spirit I will put into you. It's a new covenant promise. And I will remove the heart of a stone. That heart of stone is stubbornness, stiff-necked people. And from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, which is a flexible, responsive flesh. A responsive flesh that says, I'll obey you, God. I'll confess my sin. I'll receive your forgiveness. God is offering all this, and I will put my spirit within you. And he goes on, he says, and I will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Or it's the same, I obey my commands. You shall dwell in the land and I gave to you, to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's relationship. We are God's representatives when we know that we're reconciled, redeemed, restored, and we're regenerated for a purpose of living beyond the grave. Not to live in the grave in a stinky old grave, but to live beyond it. To make a difference, to say, God, here I am, your child, and, and cleansed, and regenerated, and redeemed, and forgiven, and indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and obeying your commands, God, in our, my sanctification. That's what it's all about. Absolute freedom. Not to carry the heavy bondage of perfectionism, but to be set free. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He goes, the devil makes it busy to keep Christians in bondage, bound and gagged. 
actually imprisoned by their own grave clothes. Just found that yesterday. Unbelievable, because we get comfortable. He says at the end, one problem is that some of our grave clothes are so comfortable we don't take them off. Powerful. Powerful statement. We just, we have an unshakable faith. But an unshakable faith doesn't mean we can't be shaken. It means God can't. That is powerful. God can't be shaken. So what should we do? Rather than pursue our perfection, let's pursue his heart. Let's pursue his heart. That's what God's called us to. Finish with this, Galatians 5, 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, not by the law, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope for the hope of righteousness, meaning the hope of his return. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The word work is in the middle voice, which means we have to do something. It's our part. What's our part? Genuine obedience to God. Reverent worship and self-sacrificing love. That's when people see something different. They won't see pharisaical attitudes or actions when we're living by faith. They will not see that if we're living beyond the grave. They will not see that if we're surrendered to God and saying, Lord, you've offered me forgiveness, freedom, and faith. I'm going to pursue you now, not the law. I pray that this week you'll be challenged. I pray that this week it may remind you, why would you and I want to go back to a stinky old grave? Why would we want to wear grave clothes? Why would we want to go back to prison? It's time to have some living faith going on right now. We got comfortable here this past year. A lot of Christians are hanging out at home, comfortable in their pajamas in the morning, watching Facebook. That's great. We appreciate that you're watching us because we know some of you have conditions that you can't come out. But if you can come out, if you're going to Walmart, you're going to all the different stores, you're going to your restaurants, if you can come out, why don't you come out? I'm not guilt tripping you. I want to encourage you to come out. We welcome you. It's great being together in community. It's great to see smiling faces through masks. <laughs> but it's great to see that we can at least see a smile even through the eyes. I want to encourage you to consider that. And as you do when you meet here, we just gather. We're huddling up because we're going to execute the plays outside of this building. This is a good place to come so that we can be held accountable encouraged and go out for the kingdom. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us today how important it is for us to live beyond the grave. Lord, please don't let us live in the grave any longer. In fact, Lord, if we start going back to the grave, make that smell a million times worse than it already is so we won't return back. God, let us not be comfortable sitting in the grave. Let us not go back to prison. You didn't call us to. You died, Jesus. You died once for all. The sin is, is done away with. You've redeemed us from the curse of the law. We don't have to live in perfection any longer, just in your perfection. Help us to surrender. Thank you for your forgiveness, Father. Thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the faith.